the Women Changing the World podcast, a podcast on a mission to bring you some of the most amazing women I know who are doing incredible things to generally make the world a better place. From corporate sustainability to straight up magic and everything in between, you'll meet the real life humans who are birthing the new. I'm your host, Liz Best, and I'm here to amplify the stories and voices of women who are changing the world. Welcome to another episode of the Women Changing the World podcast. I am so excited today to sit down with Tina Jeffress. She is the Senior Manager of Energy and Sustainability at Panasonic North America. And we had so much fun talking about silo breaking, advocating for a clean energy future, and professional patience, among other things. I just know you're going to enjoy this conversation with Tina as much as I did. Hello, and welcome to another new episode of the Women Changing the World podcast. Today, I'm so, so, so excited to be sitting down with Tina Jeffress. She's the Senior Manager of Energy and Sustainability at Panasonic North America and just an all-around sustainability badass. Welcome to the podcast, Tina. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure. Um, I've really so been looking forward to this conversation. Um, and would love if you wouldn't mind, maybe before we get into things, uh, would you mind briefly introducing yourself to our listeners? Sure. Um, I'm Tina Jeffress. I am a relatively new mom slash soon to be new mom again. Um, and I have been navigating international development, ESG, sustainability, energy, um, the intersection of a lot of different fields for a while. And I'm excited to talk about it today. Ah, I'm so excited to talk about all of those things and congrats again on being both a new mom and soon to be a new mom again. <laughs> Apparently that's the only fun fact I have now. I used to have other ways to describe myself, but yeah, that's what comes out first now. Oh my gosh. Well, I can only imagine it's like pretty consuming based on <laughs> many of the women around me. Have I not done it yet myself? Um, well, I would love to start with, so uh, you probably know what question is coming. It's my favorite first question on the podcast, but I love asking people my kind of North Star question, which is, since this is the Women Changing the World podcast, and you are a woman changing the world, if you had to pick only one thing that you could change about the world, what would your one thing be? Yeah, I gave this a lot of thought and I, I think that my answer might be cheating. It's kind of like that asking for more wishes thing. Mm. Um, but I think if I could change one thing, it would just be a magic wand that creates a whole lot more empathy. Um, whenever I think about really, really frustrating situations, whether that's interpersonal, political, um, family, of course, um, just everything awful that happens in our lives and around the world, 
I think just a whole lot more empathy would fix it, um, or at least get us to a way more functional place. Um, so because I can't just make guns disappear um, and stop climate change and reduce all inequality, um, I think that having a whole lot more empathy would help us get to all of those places. If we were just thinking outside of our ourselves and our world and our people um, for the greater good more often, um, I think we would end up with a much, much better world. Mm, I love that so much. And I feel like that was totally not just a more wishes answer. <laughs> <laughs> You're actually not the first person to say more empathy either on the podcast. I, I, I kind of figured knowing your audience. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I love it. I think it's such a great answer because I do think as you articulated so beautifully that it creates a space to hold all the other things that also need to happen. Oh my gosh. Well, there's again, so much I want to talk to you about today. And I, one of my favorite things to do on this podcast, um, and one of my favorite things to learn on this podcast selfishly is I always think it's so fun to hear about all the twists and turns that bring people to where they are at this moment that we find you like in your life, in your career. Um, I'm increasingly of the opinion that, well, I mean, it's just almost never a straight line, right? There's so many, so many twists and turns. Um, and really the invitation is like, I would love if you will take up space and tell us your story. I mean, I know you and I met in person at Greenbiz, gosh, probably like four <laughs> years ago. <laughs> yes, I harassed you at a conference. <laughs> uh, no, it was like the best conference meeting ever. <laughs> As context, I think, did you recognize me from Twitter? Am I remembering oh, yeah. that correctly? Which is so funny because I'm not sure I could have recalled that because now I just think of you as the QB universe and your own universe. But yes, I think at the time it was Twitter. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it made such an impression on me because it had literally never happened before. I'm not even on Twitter anymore. But at the time I was like, <laughs> oh my God, I've like never been like recognized from anything <laughs> in the world uh, quite like this. I was like, we're going to be friends and we are. So. <laughs> I'm glad that you, you interpreted it generously rather than, wow, this girl's super creepy. <laughs> oh my gosh. No, I, it was the best. Um, and oh my gosh, in-person conferences, uh, excited yeah. for. That was, that was also a month before COVID, which is even crazier. Yeah, or, totally. Well, no, I think it, 2019. No, I think it was the year before COVID. If I don't okay, think I went you're right. the month I, before COVID. I forgot I did go two years in a row. Okay, we can edit that out. <laughs> yeah, no worries. We're humans. Um, <laughs> I was like, was I at a conference right before COVID? <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, I mean, it was so fun to meet you. Um, and it's been so fun to get to know you over the past few years. And I also realized that like, I, I would love to hear more about like how you came to that moment and, you know, everything that's been unfolding since. So again, really like start wherever you feel like starting and would love to hear about your journey and sustainability. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm going to start way back at the beginning. I'm from Southern California, um, LA area, Redondo Beach. And I was your classic high school overachiever that was involved in absolutely everything. Um, and so naturally I went to college thinking I would be pre-med because that's just <laughs> what I thought I should do as, as what I thought of myself as, you know, a smart girl. Um, and so I went to college, I got my butt kicked in chem and calc in my first semester. And I talked to a friend who 
it was older and a lot wiser. And she said, you know, there are a lot of ways to help people that are not medicine. And that was kind of earth shattering to me at the moment. I didn't know. And so she actually introduced me to the field of public health and international development. And she said, I think this would be right up your alley. You love politics, you love policy, um, you love volunteering. This is all of those things without having to go through medical school. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so the very next semester, I switched my major to international development. Um, and so I got laser focused on this kind of niche career path, especially for someone in Southern California, like everyone I knew was doing comms or accounting. Um, but UCLA actually had a great program for international development. So I got lucky and I pretty much just dove in from there. And so right when I finished at UCLA, I was looking for internships and it was frankly really hard um, coming from LA, coming from not having a ton of like college internships or volunteer opportunities. Um, I did pay a decent of my own way through or a good amount of my own way through school. Um, so while I felt like a lot of people were going to Sub-Saharan Africa and volunteering or spending their summers in Asia, um, I was working weird odd jobs. I was coaching volleyball, I was tutoring, I was working in like the most depressing fields of law as like a junior admin and paralegal. I was working in <laughs> divorce law and elder law, which... Oh. Yeah, um, which fixed me of wanting to be an attorney, which was good. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I felt like I was completely lost trying to find my first job in development, my first job in DC. Um, and I got really lucky and had randomly a family friend of a friend who worked at a think tank saying, hey, I know this tiny organization in DC they need an intern desperately. I've heard you kind of want to go to DC and I've never talked to this person before. Um, and he said, hey, like, let me help you with your application and see how it goes. Um, and so I ended up getting the internship with this tiny organization um, and just moving to DC. I was 22, um, hadn't even technically graduated college yet, but I'd finished all my credits. So I just left. Um, and as an aside, I guess I'll document this. I moved in with my random Craigslist roommate, who is now my husband. Um, what? Oh my gosh, I love it. Weird fact, you are the second podcast guest whose random Craigslist roommate is now their husband. <laughs> I am absolutely honored to be in great company. <laughs> you absolutely are. That's so, I didn't know that's how you two met. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and so I think... We, we didn't get serious right away, but pretty soon after. Um, and so another kind of theme of my story is like, we've been making decisions together for a really, really long time. Um, I think, and that definitely influenced my path at different points um, that I wasn't always super confident about, but it has worked out very, very well. Um, so anyways, go to DC. Um, I worked for the small nonprofit that I first got the internship with, um, got a teeny tiny stipend that only afforded the rat infested Craigslist department, um, <laughs> which of course came with other benefits. Um, <laughs> and then I decided I needed to get some field work experience um, because in development, that was like the be all end all, like, have you done field work? And so, and I ended up, or let's see, 
my senior thesis at UCLA was on the DR in Haiti um, and migration issues, which is something I've always been fascinated by. And in doing research for that project, I came across a teeny tiny nonprofit operating in the Dominican Republic, um, working with Haitian migrants. And I just cold reached out to them saying, hey, I'm super interested in your work. You seem to be the only organization doing this, which certainly was not true, but with my perspective at the time, um, and asked if I could come intern. And they said, yeah, unpaid labor. We love that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Who would say no? <laughs> yeah. And so I left DC, left my then almost boyfriend and was like, yeah, I'll be back soon. We'll figure it out. Um, and I went to the DR expecting to be a program manager for a microfinance program and a women's community group. And I got there and the organization was basically like one woman holding everything together with a shoelace. And she said, okay, yeah, you're teaching preschool to elementary school literacy in Spanish. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, this is not what I came here for, but we'll make the most of it. Um, and so it was, I mean, it was, it was hard. I enjoyed the work, but it was hard and the organization had absolutely no resources. Um, they, I, yeah, not, not to pick on it or dwell on it, but it really showed how small nonprofit can really mismanage a situation and operating in a community um, that needs the support, but I don't, it was a big lesson in supporting in the right way um, and brought so much of like my academic learning to life in terms of what good development looks like and what well-intentioned development can look like when it goes really wrong. Um, and just, yeah, so I ended up, but that said, it was a job, it was field work, um, and they offered me the program manager job or local program director, I think it was, after my internship. And I said, well, I'm in no position to turn this down. I don't have a full-time job offer. Um, and everyone I talked to in DC, like the small cohort of people I had kind of gathered in my few months there basically said like, no, you have to do this. You have to stay and do field work a full year, so much more than three months. Um, and it'll get you what you want to do next. So I stayed, um, which was really lonely um, and definitely had some very hard moments, personal safety wise, um, and just kind of being on your own with no organizational resources um, was mm -hmm. rough. Um, I can only and, imagine. And you're at this, at this point, what, in your like very early twenties. Oh yeah. I was 23. Wow. Um, and yeah, just being asked to deal with things that the organization be like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. You feel really unsafe. Maybe you should get a bigger dog. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. um, yeah, it was the ultimate, yeah, just like victim blaming situation, just awful. Um, and so I ended up getting a email from an old internship boss after I think I was there seven or eight months in this new role. And he said, hey, I'm hiring. I want to hire you. And at the time, I really struggled with the decision because I had made this commitment to the organization to stay. More importantly, I'd made the commitment to the community that I was working with. Um, and I was, at that point, lived part-time in the community um, and had just gotten to know people and made really good friends. And so I felt like I was absolutely abandoning them. Um, mm. But I knew that I was not happy and I was in no position to turn down a full-time job with health, health insurance, which was not a thing I had had up until that point. 
Um, and so I ended up getting the job and I felt absolutely awful leaving that situation. Um, it was the first time I felt like I was really breaking a commitment. Um, but in hindsight, looking back, I realized like I made the only decision I could have. <laughs> like I was, I did not feel safe. I was not happy. I was not supported. Um, and so I think there's kind of a long series of those, of me overthinking those situations and feeling like I'm making a horrible decision for everyone around me when really all I was doing was making the best decision for myself. Um, oh, totally. But I also feel like at that age and like in that life situation, like one, I feel like at least I think for us, like I wouldn't have had like the vocabulary or the resources or the examples to like even be able to articulate that. And I can just, I have so much empathy for past you in that moment being like, I think I need to go, but is that okay? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was absolutely certain it was not. It was the most selfish thing I'd ever done. Um, and I just felt terrible. But in hindsight, it was, yeah, again, it was the only decision that made sense. Um, but yeah, I think over time, I've learned to stop overthinking things so much and realize that like, people are okay without me. I'm not that big of a deal in any <laughs> given situation. <laughs> um, and it's okay to prioritize my happiness or my family's happiness. Um, and yeah, big lessons that got learned later on. Um, but I came back to DC. I worked as a program manager at a think tank for three and a half years. Um, and in that role, it was a lot of admin. It was really grueling, super demanding boss. And I would say that to his face that he had totally unreasonable expectations. Um, and he is still one of my mentors today. Um, <laughs> but just one of those work situations that never turns off. Um, mm. I spent all of my evenings with my laptop open. Um, I had absolutely no boundaries. I was traveling a ton um, and I was doing the work that I thought I always really wanted to do, but I wasn't that happy. Um, mm. I think that I just at the time thought like, yeah, that's what work is. That's what work is when you care about it. It's hard and you don't like it that much. <laughs> well, especially if that's like what you're seeing modeled all around you, right? You're just like, oh, so I guess this is just like what we, we do. <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, and while there, I did get to do some research that I really cared about on migration in Central America, um, was able to take some awesome trips. Um, but ultimately, a lot of our research was funded by the private sector. And so I started seeing people in government affairs and CSR jobs, what we now would be ESG jobs, but back then they were all still CSR um, and thinking, I kind of want to go to the private sector. Mm. I could get a nonprofit job. I could keep doing research, but it seems that the private sector has the budget and has the capacity to actually do work. Um, and I think my perception of what that work would be was very skewed at the time. But I got this idea in my head that I wanted to go to a company and basically get a sustainability job. Um, and so I figured the best way to do that would be business school, um, which I fully advise most people not to go to business school because I don't think it's necessarily the most efficient way um, to get into ESG or private sector development what have you, but for me, it did really work out. Um, so I went to business school at UNC Keenan Flagler, hoping to concentrate on basically sustainable supply chains, human rights, 
I was fully focused on the social side of sustainability and ESG because that's what I'd always done in the international development, economic development realm. Um, I kind of thought of environment as, and climate as, yeah, those are issues for other people. I'm really glad other people care about them a ton, but it was just never what captured my interest. And then I had one conversation with a professor, um, which is, it's so funny that he was the catalyst for this because he was a former ExxonMobil executive, like the last person who you think would inspire me to take on a career in climate. But he looked at me and he said, if you like public policy and you like really, really tricky problems, and that's what I'm hearing from you, you should go into the energy industry. Mm. And at the time I was a little skeptical but I started signing up for energy classes. I started just kind of doing the reading on my own um, as I tend to do and just started nerding out about energy and realizing like, yeah, this is absolutely the most fascinating field and this is what I wanna do. Um, and so I came out of business school wanting an energy and sustainability job, but also wanting to stay in North Carolina because my partner then fiance had moved with me to North Carolina and our agreement was, okay, if we move here, then we're not immediately uprooting again a year and a half later after school's over, we're going to stay for a bit and put down roots. And so I took a job with a fairly local consulting firm in North Carolina that did energy and utilities work. And they talked a big game about having sustainability work, but I learned very quickly how small that profile actually was. Um, but the job made sense from a financial perspective, having business school loans, and from a personal one, knowing that I wanted to be in North Carolina. Um, and so I was at that firm for three and a half years, total mixed bag, some wonderful projects, some wonderful bosses, some really, really awful ones, um, and a pretty toxic work culture overall. Um, but in spite of that, I was able to find figure out what I wanted to get out of the experience and what I wanted to learn and find a way for the firm to support that. Um, so I saw very early on that all of our clients in the utility sector were way ahead of us on ESG. And I saw that as a huge liability. Like how are we supposed to make the case that we can support our clients when we aren't doing any of this work ourselves and don't necessarily have the capacity to do so? Um, so I basically started from scratch and pitched progressively more senior individuals at the firm on the idea of doing a materiality assessment and starting an ESG reporting program. And it worked. And um, so I was able to help publish the first two, I did the first materiality assessment, helped publish the first two ESG reports, um, and was really able to carve out a niche for myself where I was able to go to conferences. I was able to get SASB certified. Um, and I was able to keep building credentials, even though my day-to-day -day had almost nothing to do with that sort of work. Um, and so, I, yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of what I did in a place that was not necessarily the friendliest environment for the work that I wanted to do. Um, there were a lot of skeptics. I stepped on a lot of toes. I was frequently told that I was leaning too far out over my skis or that I was perceived as aggressive, um, every single, uh, yeah, every single misogynistic euphemism was basically used in all of my performance reviews. Uh. Um, 
which is why I ultimately got out. Um, but I was still able to get so much from that experience, just figuring out what skills I wanted to build um, and then using this really tiny firm as a place to practice them. So which whether is that so was- cool. <laughs> Um, I was super, super skeptical that that experience would scale, um, but I hoped it would. I just really wasn't sure. And so I basically got to the point where it was like, I really, really want to leave this job, but I also want to have a kid. Um, and so I decided that I would have my daughter and then basically find a job straight from maternity leave. That didn't quite work out, um, but I started the job hunting process right after I had my daughter. Um, I was back at work, but on pretty non-intensive projects, so I was able to spend quite a bit of time job hunting, um, and it was really, it was a tough period. I had had postpartum depression, um, had really struggled to adjust to who I was as a mom. Um, and so figuring out that work identity, figuring out who I was going to be and how I would view myself going forward, um, really all got wrapped up in this job search. Um, so I think I put a ton of pressure on myself, um, and ended up, I, I got some offers, got some opportunities, but none really made sense financially or personally. And it was so hard turning down those offers. Oh, I can not, only imagine, especially like what a, you know, what an intense emotional place to be job searching from and to know that you're ready, but to also have the wherewithal to be like, this is not it for me is really impressive. Yeah. It, it was so hard because I was finally getting like that market validation I'd always wanted of like, oh, wow, a, a large sustainability consulting firm wants to hire me, but oh, wow, this does not pay for daycare. <laughs> um, and having that realization was so hard. Um, and one opportunity in particular, it was, had you asked me two years ago what my dream job was, that was it. And I was in negotiations with them and I was so, I was heartbroken, but they wanted me to move to San Francisco and they weren't paying anything that made sense to move my family. Um, and so it was the first time that I really had to reconcile like okay this is what I think is my dream job but I have to say no because it's not right for my family and that was so hard and I was definitely bitter about it um but in the back of my mind I also had ethical concerns about the company um it was a very cool company but I definitely had concerns and I was willing to kind of let my ego overshadow them <laughs> um and ultimately said no to the opportunity that was that and was basically just mourning it um, when I started interviewing with Panasonic. And I applied to this job on LinkedIn. I knew absolutely nothing about what Panasonic is today. We don't make TVs. We don't make really home electronics at all. Um, our biggest product is EV batteries, um, which is something that I learned in the job interview, which I certainly <laughs> should have learned before then. Um, if my boss ever hears this, sorry, Jeff. Um, and what was so funny about this experience is a couple years earlier, and actually it may have been at the Green Biz where we initially met, I remember going to some startup pitch session. And in that moment, I was thinking, wow, if I could do absolutely anything, I would start a sustainable EV battery company. 
And I had all of these ideas for how it would work. And everyone I told about it was like, yeah, but you're not an engineer. Yeah, but that takes a lot of capital. Yeah, but you're not a battery expert. Um, and so this little, like the first time I had a creative idea, I just kind of let it die on the vine because it was like, okay, this is totally impractical for my skill set and place in life. Um, and then here I was interviewing with the largest EV battery maker, it, essentially in the world, or certainly um, in the US. And I, I couldn't, I almost couldn't believe my luck that like saying no to those opportunities, getting the piecemeal experience I'd gotten over the last decade all led me to this place where this Panasonic job made perfect sense. Um, and so I interviewed and found out in the course of my first interview, along with the fact that Panasonic makes Tesla batteries, um, that it was a lobbying position, which was not clear to me at all from the job posting. And I had never really imagined myself as a lobbyist, um, but the way my boss described it, or my now boss, it started to make sense, um, that it was really about policy communication. Um, there's no tax or political giving or any of the things that someone might think of as the greasier side of lobbying. Um, and it really is working for a company that I have grown to believe in. Um, and so it has all worked out, but there were so many times when I thought I'd hit a dead end or I was on the wrong path. Um, but here I am in my absolute dream job that I never, ever want to leave. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh, I have full body chills. Thank you. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for sharing the whole story that it's just that so, take our whole time. <laughs> no, not at all. It's just, it's so cool to hear. It's so cool to hear. Um, especially like, you know, in all the moments where it, I'm sure it was really hard to keep going, but to have that feeling that you've arrived somewhere that you never want to leave, like that's so cool. Yeah. I never, ever expected to be here. Um, I, had always figured that work would involve some sort of trade-off, whether that was not believing in the work I was doing or having an awful schedule or having to work with terrible people. Um, every other role I've ever had, had those trade-offs um, and this one really doesn't. And so, I mean, of course there are trade-offs and we'll get to those, <laughs> but so many fewer than any other job I've had. Would you like to take the time to fully capture your accomplishments from this year, reflect on what you're calling in in 2023, and create your own personal vision board? Our Winter Workshop Series is an opportunity to do all of that while also connecting with an intimate community of women changing the world. Each event will include a guided meditation, prompts to help you structure your reflection, and worksheets and templates to help you capture the magic. Sign up for one, two, or all three today and get 20% off when you use the promo code podcast. Visit http colon slash slash www.elizabethbest, that's Elizabeth with an S, best, B-E-S-T, dot com slash workshops for all the details and to join us. Uh, that's just amazing. I have the biggest smile on my face. Um, it makes me so happy to hear that. And I also think it's so interesting, this piece about being in like, you know, more of like a lobbying capacity. I mean, as I, you may know, I started my career in government affairs. Yeah. Um, and I just like, 
really think that the policy space is like an underappreciated aspect of like sustainability and ESG work overall, especially when you think about the systems change that's required for us to actually create a clean energy economy. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I think the work that you're doing, especially that you're doing it in DC is so cool. Um, and I'm curious for people who are listening and who are like, well, what are like some of the policy issues that are being discussed right now that like, I don't know, I feel like probably the average voter is like maybe not even aware of, like what are some of the policy issues that you work on on a day-to-day basis to the extent that you can share that with us or even just policy issues that we as voters may want to be aware of? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so what I will say is this question has a totally different answer than it would have two months ago. Um, we had the surprise Inflation Reduction Act um, that got passed last month. There was that, I may have even been signed this month. I don't know. I feel like I've lived two years in the last two months since it's since this I, yeah, like, was released. <laughs> when is time? It was in the summer of 2022, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and so I remember that week I got asked on Monday by someone from our battery business, hey, do we need to be worried about tax incentives or any federal policy? And I responded really quickly, almost immediately to her. Nope, not a big deal. All federal policy is dead. Nothing's going to happen this year if we can direct our resources elsewhere. And then probably under 48 hours later, the (laughs) summary text dropped and I had to write back saying, hey, just kidding, Um, (laughs) this might change everything. And it was so strange having the IRA be my first, because again, I'd never worked on Capitol Hill. Um, I had never done legislative policy before. And so having that be the first text that I really took a deep dive into was terrifying. Um, but it was also really, really exciting. Um, it has crazy incentives and crazy in the best way, um, incentives for renewable energy developers, for manufacturers, and that's where Panasonic sits. And it really changes the economics of the energy transition in the U.S. and therefore globally. Um, and so it is a whole new ballgame, and it's really, really exciting. Um, I was on a panel last week um, at a global forum in Pittsburgh, and the moderator of the panel basically referred to this as the post-IRA world, um, and I completely agree with that. Like, we are in a, such a different place, and I am optimistic about climate policy in the U.S. for the first time ever, and granted, I've only been working on climate for a couple years, whereas so many people have been in this battle for decades, Um but it is really, really exciting where we are now. Um, and oh my so gosh, that's we... amazing to hear. That is so cool. I feel like you are closer to this than 95% of the people that I know. So it gives me a lot of hope to hear you say that. <laughs> yeah. And when we it comes to sort of the next battle, so like we have, we now have the tax incentives. We have the basically capital structure necessary to build a ton of renewable energy, to transition away from combustion engines. Um, But there are some really tough trade-offs ahead. Um, Right now, there's a battle in Congress over um, permitting reform. And that's something that basically decides if we can build all the transmission we need to move renewable energy from 
places where there's a whole lot of it and not that many people to places like California where we have a ton of people and need a lot of power. Um, mm. And so at the same time, permitting reform may also mean that in the short term, you have a few more oil and gas projects that may not have gone through otherwise. But it's because of those trade-offs that the IRA was able to get through in the first place. And so what I would say is that we all just need to have a really pragmatic lens and focus on the biggest issue going forward, which is the long-term energy transition and building as much renewable power as quickly as we can. And that is going to take some short-term trade-offs with industry, with entrenched political stakeholders. But those things should not, one more pipeline being built should not have us lose focus on the broader picture of hundreds of times that of renewable energy being built, if that makes sense. Um, so I think like that pragmatic, let's do the hard work lens is what we all need right now. Um, really no matter where we sit kind of in the economy. Um, and so along with the big infrastructure that we need, um, we also just need to keep electrifying everything. Um, mm. And this is something that California is really good at writing policy on. Um, I think there was a new gas ban uh, or new ban on natural gas furnaces and heating in California that either recently passed or is about to pass. Um, but that's the kind of legislation we need everywhere. Um, and that's also something that consumers can have a huge part in. Um, I am super lucky that I bought a house in the DC area that doesn't have any gas lines. And so we have electric heating, we have a heat pump, we have an electric stove, um, and those technologies are really good now. Um, so we all have to get over that personal mindset that like we need a fancy gas range or that we need <laughs> gas heating or um, traditional AC. Um, the clean technologies are there and we all just need to focus on minimizing fossil fuel use wherever we can. And that means in our personal lives, as well as keeping our leaders accountable and our corporations accountable. Um, so it's, it's a really exciting, and this is all because of the IRA, that there are new incentives. We will be manufacturing more of these products. Um, yeah, there's just a huge opportunity for everyone to take part in this really electrify everything movement. Um, so. It's exciting. I love talking about it. Um, and it, there are also so many other multiplier effects for public health, for inequality. Um, and so it really does feel like this legislation lays the groundwork for a new economy in the US. That is so exciting to hear. Um, and I also feel like it's so catchy and so memorable. It's just like electrify everything. <laughs> what do we yeah. need to do? Electrify everything. everything. <laughs> Definitely not my term. <laughs> totally, totally. But um, but yeah, thank you so much for sharing that because I also feel like it is like super practical in terms of like for people who are thinking about even just like at home in their own lives and people who are thinking about like maybe within their organizations, like different shifts that they could be making. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I guess one thing I haven't really talked about is in addition to my policy role at Panasonic and why this job has been so absolutely surprisingly perfect is that I'm also able to take part in operational decision making for our manufacturing, for our offices, um, and so helping to push the teams to not put in gas furnaces and gas boilers in our manufacturing facilities, but to do a fully electric facility. Um, and mm. so 
getting to kind of bring my policy expertise to bear as well as sort of market forecasting and everything else um, and just that I, understanding the broader ESG risk lens um, has been so helpful in terms of actually getting to weigh in on these decisions at the operational level. Um, so I just, I will say it over and over again, but I love my job because I get to really take part in every facet of how the company basically interacts with the world. Um, and we are a global Japanese company and our US operations are only one piece of that. Um, but just getting to see the scale at which we operate um, and have a tiny say in how we do it is really cool. Absolutely. Well, and it's it feels like kind of a cool, I don't know if it's like full circle moment, but even just thinking back to what you had shared about like, you know, when you were working within the consulting firm of like, you know, in order for us to be credible and offering these like advisory services, we need to do this like within our own walls. And it's cool to hear that you're getting to do that you know, to further reinforce your credibility in the policy space and making the operational decisions that also support the kind of world that you're working to create from a policy perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's so applicable because, I mean, we make solar panels, we make electric vehicle batteries, um, we make storage batteries for the home. Um, but if our operations aren't contributing to those same goals, then obviously there's a conflict there. Um, and so I, my job is really making sure that I'm at least giving people the input so that we can try to make decisions that are all in alignment with our broader climate goals. Definitely, which is so important because I do feel like so often I would love to say that this is like an in the past thing, although I know it's probably <laughs> more true in the present than I would like to believe. But um, I feel like, you know, so often people are operating in silos and just making the best decisions they can make with the information that they have. And having the inputs to make a better decision, I think is so important to a more holistic approach to these things. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been so surprising how my experience from a 200 person firm has scaled up to this 200,000, 400,000, I'm blanking on the number, um, enormous global company. Um, like, and the first steps I took at my small company were a materiality assessment and setting up an ESG steering committee. Those are the exact same first steps I took when I started my role at Panasonic. Um, and so it was really interesting to see that even a company with really advanced goals um, that's a part of every reporting protocol um, and every global coalition still needed this basic like silo breaking down and prioritization exercise. Mm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, that's so fun. I feel like to think how it just, yeah, you just multiplied the scale by like a thousand <laughs> potentially. Yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> so cool. Um, well, I want to change gears a little bit because I also want to talk to you about some other like more personal stuff. I mean, I can talk to you for hours, but I feel like I'd be <laughs> remiss not to ask a couple questions. Um, one, I know that actually maintaining important friendships throughout your career and like the you know wild life journey that you've been on has just played a massive role in both your sanity and your success. Um, I also feel like friendship, especially like as I don't even know what stage of the pandemic we're in right now, but I feel like <laughs> friendship is something that's really I think you know been coming up a lot more as a topic of discussion in 
pandemic and post-pandemic, if we are in fact post-pandemic life. Um, so like, how would you say you've managed to prioritize your friendships and how have they helped you to get to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, if I were asked like what my superpower would be, it's staying in touch with people. Um, mm. And that's, <laughs> that's personally, that's professionally. Um, I think I've just, I've moved around a lot in my life, whether that was just like attending a different middle school than I did high school and then moving to DC before I even graduated college. And if I wanted to maintain those friendships, I felt like I had to be the one to put the work in because I was the one who was always leaving pretty much constantly. Um, And so I feel like I got really good at just constantly checking in with people and showing them that they mattered to me. Um, and so I, you obviously can't keep in touch with everyone always. Um, but I think that I generally surprise people with how I maintain friendships over time and over distance. Um, and it's been so, so valuable. And I mean, just life-saving throughout the pandemic, throughout becoming a mom. Um, I think I have like four different new mom threads and they're all kind of people from different phases of life. And we all have different things to share with each other. And just having even that tiny bit of community at 3 a.m. when you're trying to learn to breastfeed is just so, so important. Um, And then I've been lucky that I also, a few of my closest friends are also in ESG, um, are also always navigating similar challenges. And so we can have really open conversations um, that are sometimes productive and sometimes dissenting. Um, but it's, I, I think that's so special. Um, my husband is a person who does not always want to talk about work, even though, as <laughs> I'm sure you've observed, I could talk about work always. Um, <laughs> and so it's really important that I have those other people in my life um, that we can have those conversations um, and get into the nitty gritty of someone's really detailed work conflict or just issue that needs to be solved. Um, so it's turned into kind of a professional brain trust, but a, prefer, a personal support system. Um, and yeah, just having that community and taking the time to make trips to see people. Um, I'm so glad that I really invested time in those friendships when I could, because um, obviously it's a whole lot harder now to leave for four days um, to go see a friend in Seattle but that's exactly what I did before the pandemic. I basically did a friend visiting tour. Obviously oh. didn't know COVID was coming, um, but I had a couple friends. I always have a, before, in the before times, I always had a running list of trips I wanted to make and people I wanted to visit. Um, and a few of those I just hadn't found time for yet. And so I basically carved out um, two different weekends and was like, okay, I'm gonna go see all the friends I haven't visited yet. And then COVID hit a month later. And so it was just one of those things that it was like, thank God I did that at the time because there was a pandemic and now I have a baby. And um, yeah, it was just so worthwhile to invest in those friendships and yeah, build that community while it was a whole lot easier to do. Oh, totally, totally. I bet like that's such a gift. I am sure like that you gave both to yourself and to your friends. that I'm sure helped carry you through the past few years. I love like your, that you have built this community, that you have the professional brain trust. It's something that I've observed is like, can be such a game changer, Um, especially around the topic of 
how to balance having a career that you love and also wanting to have a life. Like, I feel like being surrounded by like hype women who can like reinforce (laughs) the belief that like you deserve both of those things and they're very possible, uh, just can be such a game changer. Um, I'm curious, like what trade-offs have you experienced before, like between those two things, right? Between like absolutely loving your job and also, especially in this moment of your life, like really wanting to have and prioritize your life. Um, do you have any wisdom that you would offer on the topic? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I'm still learning this lesson every single day. Um, last week, I agreed to travel to two different cities and it was amazing, but I was nauseous and super sick and in pain from pregnancy basically the whole time. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. hmm, maybe this is not the best decision and I should start saying no to travel, um, even though it was for really fun reasons and I'm so glad I did it. Um So I feel like it's still that situation where I need to learn my own boundaries. Um, But I also feel like right now I'm kind of in that sprint before I go on leave again. Um, And so I've definitely started to realize that like my career is a marathon, not a sprint. Um, And that I, I hope that I am in this job for a very, very long time. And I think the nature of being in a big traditional company also helps give me perspective that like big problems take a long time to solve and I can't solve them alone. Whereas Mm -hmm. I think at other points in my career, I thought if I went on vacation or if I left or if I failed at a task, it wouldn't get done and it would be my fault. Um, Whereas I think I now have some, at least some um, broader perspective that it's okay for things to take time and it's okay for me to do things a bit slower or to push a meeting a week if that's what I need to do for my life. Um, Mm. And so, yeah, very much still in the process of learning this though. Oh, I, I mean, totally. I can only imagine. And I also am just picturing like everyone listening, nodding a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It like, I mean, it sounds when it sounds like such like wisdom and, and perspective. And I know so many people, myself, so included who felt, it felt so existential, right? Like I can't skip, I can't push that meeting. Cause then if I push the meeting, then the deadline gets pushed and we'll never get there. Yeah. Um, but actually if you burn yourself out trying to make the meeting happen, then you're not going to get there anyway. Definitely. Um, and I think one of the internal debates I still have is like, I was totally in my early career. I had that mentality that like, yes, it's my early career. It's supposed to suck. Um, And I'm supposed to be working crazy hours and I'm supposed to be miserable and I'm supposed to have no boundaries. That's what it takes to succeed. Um, Whereas now I'm in this position where I can do a lot of creating my own schedule and having really firm boundaries around the hours I work, when I travel um, and just kind of the commitments I make. But I still... I I still don't know kind of what actually was necessary in my early career and got me here Um, versus times I probably could have said, started saying no a lot earlier. Totally. Yeah. That really resonates. It's like, we'll never know. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Well, I would love to talk and I feel like we could honestly have an entire podcast on like balancing being like a mom, a newish mom um, with like living your life and having personal goals, but like at the same time wanting to be a great parent. Um, 
I'm curious, like how, how have you been balancing those things, right? In addition to like balancing work and life, like there's just so much to balance. So please, any, like any wisdom or advice that you have that you can share on the topic, I'm sure will be so appreciated while also very much appreciating that I'm sure it's a work in progress as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that my biggest lesson so far has just been to be super upfront about my boundaries and constraints. And that's something that I was always really bad at. But all of a sudden, I have this thing that people really can't question that's basically like instant prioritization. Like, mm. no, I, I have to do daycare pickup. Like, that is a non negotiable. Um, and of course, I'm lucky to have a great partner. I truly, truly have no idea how single parents do it. I am absolutely in awe of single moms um, because it's so hard, even with a partner, to balance all of the commitments. But I think that it is just instant prioritization. It's so cliche, but I always know what matters most. Um, but that said, there are still trade-offs. I would have loved to be with my daughter last week, but I decided it was more important to travel. Um, and so I was tearing up at every tiny blonde girl I saw in an airport mm. who reminded me of my daughter. Um, but I also knew that I was on the road for a reason. Um, and so I think that you, it's, again, super cliche, but you can't have it all. You have to decide what is most important in any given situation. And that can be somewhat fluid. There are going to be times I miss bedtime. There are going to be times I'm traveling um, and wish I weren't. But there are also going to be times when I have to say no to exciting dinners or speaking engagements because I know I need to be with my daughter. Um, and so I think it's just really taking it one day at a time and recognizing that in either situation, a single event or moment is unlikely to be make or break, <laughs> which is weird to say that about parenting, but learning that, and I think that'll change a lot as my daughter gets older and sort of knows what's what, um, but it's nice knowing that kind of life is long on the parenting and career front and you won't always get it right. Mm, it's like so much grace in that. Yes. Um, <laughs> Thank you for finding the word that I could not, which is just learning to give yourself a whole lot of grace. Um, and I've also kind of learned to expect it from other people, which is something I don't think I allowed myself early on. Um, now I expect people to understand that I have constraints and to give me grace when, like last night, my daughter was up from 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. for absolutely no reason. Mm -hmm. um, I told a coworker today I was late for our call because I had to take a nap. <laughs> and she <laughs> was kind enough to give me the grace <laughs> and not give me a hard time about that. Um, so yeah, it's, I'm just really grateful to be in a work environment where I can be open about my priorities and the fact that being a mom is super, super important to me. I've never felt like I've had to hide that. Um, whereas in the consulting environment, it was kind of frowned upon to talk about your personal life or your kids, which was so funny because I felt like that's when I made the best client relationships was when we did talk about those things. Mm. Um, but you were supposed to be a professional first and on the road and in front of your client and that's all that mattered. Um, so I'm really glad to now have a job that lets me have a full life and in fact encourages it. Definitely, because I'm sure you're so much better at what you do when you're not also spending energy trying to hide yes. <laughs> what, like, what's going on. 
Um, well, again, as I said earlier, like I could seriously talk to you for hours and I would like look forward to talking to you for hours. Um, I will get us closer to wrapping up our podcast conversation though. I have a couple quick hit questions I would love to ask you before we say goodbye to our listeners. And the first one, um, I think you, well, you may know both of them are coming. Um, <laughs> one is if you could give your younger self any advice and you can totally pick an age or just give some generic younger self advice, but what do you wish you could tell younger Tina? Yeah. Um, I mean, this advice, I think I've alluded to it earlier, but just no decision is as big in the moment as it feels. Mm. Um, and that it is okay to prioritize what matters to you most in that moment and to not necessarily think four steps down the line. Um, that was thinking that really tripped me up and I think created a ton of anxiety in relationships, professionally, with family, uh, with friends. I mean, for a very, very long time and up until recently. I was just the person that always fretted over every decision or every time I had to tell someone I couldn't do something or I couldn't make it. Um, I thought those were unrecoverable situations. Um, but now I realize that I was just making the best decision I could with the information I had at the time. Um, and again, just give myself some grace um, because I really, really stressed myself out trying to make the perfect decision to take the perfect job to plan the perfect pathway. Um, and here I am in a totally different field than I thought I wanted to go into, um, working for a company that wasn't even on my radar and it has ended up absolutely perfect. Um, so it's really just how the idea of the dream job or the dream life changes over time and that it really is impossible to see three steps down the road. So all you can do mm -hmm. is focus on what's in front of you and move on. Yes. And I also love this idea that I so believe in that, like be open to like getting everything that you want, but it looking different than you thought it would look. Exactly. Um, oh, that's so great. Uh, okay. Well, last question. Uh, I'm obsessed with inspirational post-its and I ask <laughs> everyone on the podcast, what's the post-it like on your computer desk, on your brain? Um, one day I'll assemble them all. Uh, but I'm curious, <laughs> what is your current favorite inspirational post-it note message? Yeah. Um, and I, again, wow, just full of cliches tonight, but just that you can do hard things. Mm -hmm. um, I think so much of my life, I thought that if I wasn't kind of a natural at something, it meant I was never going to be that good at it. And therefore I should try something else. Um, and business school luckily completely disabused me of that notion. Like I was never going to be amazing at Excel, but I had to learn to do it. Um, same with basically every other quantitative topic ever. <laughs> but just realizing that sometimes you just have to work really hard at something and the end product might just be good enough. It might not be amazing, but that's okay. Um, and I also have to have the you can do hard things mentality at 2 a.m. with my daughter when she's alternating headbutting me and giving me kisses. And all I want to do is go back to bed, but reminding <laughs> myself that I can do hard things. Um, and so I, that's something it, it took me. I was always a really hard worker, but I also got frustrated really easily when things didn't come naturally to me or when results 
weren't what I was expecting. And so I think to me, you can do hard things as both diligence, but also expectations management. Um, and that has been so important as I try to balance family work um, and still having a life and interest um, as, yeah, a, a pretty busy mom. Uh, <laughs> Uh, such a great reminder, and I'm such a Glennon fan. Um, so, <laughs> so I think that's such a, again, such a brilliant reminder, I think, for so many of us. Um, and I'm sure, especially, there are moments when it comes in particularly handy. Um, well, I, again, like to be continued because this has been so much fun. You're such a natural storyteller. I so appreciate you taking us on like your career journey and sharing so much of yourself and your wisdom on the podcast. It has been seriously such a treat, um, just such a treat. So um, I guess the last question I'll ask is for people who are listening, who are as obsessed with you as I am, where is the best place <laughs> for them to like find you or follow along with you? Um, well, unlike you, I was not wise enough to leave Twitter a long time ago. <laughs> so I'm still on Twitter. Um, and it's CMP underscore death, J-E-F-F. Um, and that's my handle on Instagram too. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really consider myself a content curator at all. So who knows what you'll find there on any given day. Um, but yeah, and of course, LinkedIn as well, although that's a really boring one. Awesome. Well, we'll be sure to include links to all three in the show notes for people who are listening. Uh, thank you again so much, Tina. Really, really appreciate you making the time to come on the show. Thank you so much. And again, I know we've said this feels so full circle in a lot of ways, but you were one of those conversations I had when I was a completely lost new mom trying to figure out what to do with my life. Um, so thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Of course. I have like I don't know how I helped and it's so cool to see how things have unfolded since. Awesome. Thank you so much, Liz. It's so good to talk to you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Women Changing the World podcast. Please rate and review the Women Changing the World podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe for future episodes. You can find me on Instagram. My handle is Liz.Best, that's L-A-S dot B-E-S-T, or you can find me on LinkedIn by searching my name, Liz Best. Join my mail list by visiting ElizabethBest.com slash monthly meditation, and you'll receive all the latest updates on events, retreats, and opportunities to work with me, plus a monthly love note from my heart to your inbox. I am so excited to keep in touch, and I'll see you in the next episode.